This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fern Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Here again today with another episode of the podcast. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part series on title commitments and as they relate to closing, and then also surveys and how to order a survey and how to read a survey. I think the two are aligned because they both have to do with understanding what you're buying and uh, what the seller is representing. So for today, we're just going to jump right into it. A title commitment. I think we've all seen these documents. They're generally from a, a big title company, a First American or an Old Republic or Chicago title. But there's lots of title companies out there. I don't have any any one given title company that I'm, you know, have allegiance to. And sometimes it's a big deal to the buyer or the seller, and you can kind of cave on that issue. Now, I do have some title companies I've used more than once and kind of like them because I know what to expect, but it's typically not the hill I'm going to die on. If there was a, a title company that previously did some title work on the property, it might make sense to go with them because it's going to be a little less expensive, uh, maybe some economies of scale there. But I'll just jump into kind of what, what is on a title commitment. And at the beginning of the document, it basically says, here's the issuing agent. Here I'm looking at one that says Illinois Real Estate Title Center, LLC. Then it has a commitment number, has the issuing office file number. That's just basically their internal tracking of what this policy number is. And then it'll have the property address, assuming there's a legal property address. If You're definitely going to want a legal description uh, that a surveyor has looked at. We'll get into that more here later. And the, the first page is really the Schedule A, and this has the commitment date. This is the date that they actually, the title company did the research and pulled the title and pulled all the exceptions and easements, things of that sort. And that's that's not the day of closing. This is early on. Typically, the title commitment date is going to be a couple days after the contract is executed. A lot of times, a seller or buyer are not going to spend money on pulling title until after they have a deal, after they have a contract. And then it's delivered during the due diligence period. It's negotiable who pays for this, but I'd say it's a lot more common for the seller to pay for a title commitment. I mean, really, it's like if, if you're selling 123 Main Street and you're representing you own 123 Main Street, then then put your money where your mouth is and, sh- and show me what you've got. Show me your title. So when I'm selling, I'll do that. When I'm buying, I kind of expect the other party to do so. And the next thing's on the policy. It'll tell you what type of policy it is. Generally, it's an Alta, Alta Owner's Policy, which is American Land Title Association Owner's Policy, and it's got the date of the last update on that. Then you list the policy amount. It's important that this is the right amount, because sometimes in a mobile home park transaction, you've got personal property like mobile homes or equipment. Maybe you have an intangible personal property like Goodwill or Going Concern. And there's, I've talked about in some other episodes why it's important to allocate that purchase price. But for the policy amount, you want to make sure that it's the right amount for you, which typically would mean the full consideration that you're, you're paying. And sometimes this title company will push back and say, no, I'm not going to cover the mobile home amount. But you can, you know, I've, I've had them push it back up and push it to the full consideration price. What that does is it increases the premium. And then we'll get into closing statement here in a few minutes. But basically... Either the buyer or the seller has to pay for the owner's policy. 
and the owner's policy, it basically that, that represents the title of the owner, which if I'm the one buying it on the day of closing, that's me. So I want it to be good. But if, it, if there's a problem, it's really the seller's problem because the seller currently owns property. So it's, it's more common that the seller will pay for the owner's policy. And some jurisdictions have kind of local customs or practices, but as a general rule of thumb, I would say the owner's policy needs to be paid for by the seller. And then it lists the proposed insured. Right here, I've got my company, Third Floor Properties, LLC. But that's what the title company says because sometimes they're not that sharp. But in my contract, it says Third Floor Properties, LLC, and or assigns. And I never buy a property in my holding, in my kind of management company or my overhead company. Uh, I buy it in a specific special purpose entity. So later, I will send the title company an assignment document with the new, you know, 123 Main Street LLC or whatever it is. The next thing on Schedule A is it talks about the interest or the estate to be uh, described or referred to. And typically, it's fee simple interest. You're not buying as a mobile home park typically a lease option unless you're doing a lease. Excuse me, unless you're doing like a lease option or a master lease, you're, you're probably going to buy fee simple as opposed to a leasehold interest or something else. The next it says who's the title is currently vested in. This would be the, the current owner, and you want to make sure it sounds. If you're buying it from John Smith and this says John Doe, you better look into that. Uh, but typically, the title company is going to do a lot of this work for you before closing. They're going to make sure they get you know evidence of the LLC or the person that they own this property. The next piece is the land described. And this legal description, sometimes legal descriptions are easy. Like if it's a if it's a platted lot, it may say like you know block five, lot two of Smith subdivision, situated in Chicago, Illinois, or Cook County, Illinois, or something like that. But it's usually not that easy. Usually it's it's, it's meets and bounds legal description that it's not really crystal clear English, which is where a surveyor comes in handy. Okay, the, the next part of this is really Schedule B, and these are kind of requirements. And these are requirements are, this is kind of boilerplate, but it's basically a number of things like in order for the title com- company to give you this title commitment. And again, the title commitment is basically representing that you know, hey, post-closing, if there's a problem where somebody you know comes out of the woodwork and says, hey, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the proper owner of that property, you want to be defended against that. So the title, the title company gives you that level of comfort, that level of insurance. But they have certain accept requirements and exceptions. So the first requirement is typically like the proposed insured must notify them if they're aware of any other party who has an interest in this. So like if you're aware that, you know, Cousin Larry has, you know, a right to purchase or owns 9% of the deal – you didn't disclose that and it's not of record, you need to tell the title, title company. And then you have to pay the, you or the seller has to pay the fees, pay the premiums for the policy, and then any documents that are satisfactory to the title company, which we'll get into, that are essentially the exceptions. And in the next, um, they have a typical form, they call it an affidavit, and sometimes it's seller and buyer. I've seen it, you know, most times it's both, but sometimes it's seller affidavit, basically promising that, a, B, and C do not exist, like no known violations of government, no condemnation, etc. Most of those sort of items are in your purchase contract anyway as seller representations warranties. This is just a title company essentially helping guarantee title for you post-closing. Sometimes the title company have additional requirements, especially if you make endorsements, which I'll get into, like a zoning endorsement or a survey endorsement. They'll want to see evidence of that. Like they're not a zoning endorsement is basically saying the title company is going to give you, you know, extra level of insurance that the zoning is appropriate. And then that way, if later on there was some sort of error for the zoning, 
you're still going to be good. And if, and if the city you know, puts the screws to you and you somehow lose your zoning, well, at least you get your money back, in a sense, from the title company. Well, the title company's not going to take that risk unless they have some sort of proof, like a zoning letter or a certificate of zoning. Same thing with the survey. They're going to want to see a survey from a licensed surveyor with a seal with a signature on it before they're going to give you a survey endorsement. And the survey endorsement basically represents the quality and the, the size and the, the character of the property, um, which I'll get into more in, in the next episode. But the next portion of the uh, continuing here on, I guess, Schedule B, Part 1, It'll typically have some information about the you know required documents for the title company. So, for example, the company has the LLC documents on file for third floor properties. Okay, so for this case, this title company already had my stuff on file. So they're saying so long as Ferdinand Neiman remains the authorized signatory, the company requires only an affidavit of no change. But typically, what they're going to need is they're going to need the formation documents of this LLC. They're going to need formation documents of whatever the assignment LLC is, the assignee, and, and, and so forth. And that just basically proves that you're able to, you're representing and can prove that you're able to close the transaction. They may want a resolution of the LLC authorizing you specifically to sign the closing documents. So Schedule B Part 1 is kind of benign. Uh, Schedule B Part 2, I think this is, the, this is the important one, frankly. This is the exceptions. And there's some standard exceptions like any taxes due, they need to be paid at closing and prorated, or they need to either be, be paid or be prorated so that the buyer can pay them. And then it'll have generic exceptions like rights of the public, the state, the county, the city, etc. And sometimes it's, that's pretty boilerplate, but and pretty benign. But other times you want to, if it's like you're, if you've got, for example, property that's adjacent to a navigable waterway, then the Army Corps of Engineers and federal government's going to have, you know, their their clenches on you, and they're going to have a, they're going to have rights to that property. So that's that's the government one that kind of scares me sometimes. Just make sure there's nothing like that. And then there's other rights away for drainage ditches or laterals, underground pipes, etc. And then rights or claims of parties in possession not shown by the public records. That's you know seems fair to me to the title company that if they're unaware by the looking at the public records that John Doe has a has a, some sort of deal where he can you know walk across the property with his fifty cows you know every Sunday. You know, and then you can't build on that location of the property. That that's a big deal. But if they don't know about it, they they're not going to insure against it. So this is just you know kind of their, their typical exceptions. The, the exceptions that I care about the most are easements. And you'll see things. These are called exceptions, and there's exception documents. So uh, rather than me have to go pull all these documents that are referenced, like this one is an easement contained in warranty deed recorded September 16, 1987, is a document number 87R24988. Okay, that document number tells you about it in the county recorder of deeds office what that recordation number is. I don't really feel like going down to the title company or the county recorder of deeds office and pulling this information. So I just ask the title company, give me the exception documents. And they, they typically do it for free. Sometimes they're slow. Sometimes they're annoyed by this. But in my mind, that's part of their job. And they send you these. If if the good title companies will have them hyperlinked, you know, already in the title commitment. But the, the smaller or you know, more rudimentary places will have to go pull them manually, and then you, they'll give you a bunch of PDFs, which is okay as well. It's just typically slower. But anyway, you have to read those documents, and sometimes you need to hire an expert, either an attorney or a surveyor, to help you read them. But sometimes, for example, of a you know, gas line easement. If the, if the gas line easement says something like, you know, Kansas Gas Company can uh, place gas lines on the eastern edge of the property for the first 10 feet along Main Street. Okay, 
that's pretty easy for you to figure out, especially if you survey. You'll figure out where the exact boundary line is on the east side of your property along Main Street, and you can measure 10 feet, and you know that any gas lines are supposed to be in there. This is really important for mobile home parks because if you want to bring more homes in, you can't put a mobile home on a gas line. You can't put it over power. You can't put it under power lines. But if you have an easement that shows it's only on the available and allowed on the, the eastern 10 most feet, well, then, you know, that's great. Then you, you can then determine, is that going to be in the way of where I'm going to put my homes? As opposed to if it has a blanket easement or if it has some easement that's really complicated, like 297.68 feet thence north 20 feet, thence westerly 297.68 feet on a line parallel to the north line of said lot 1, thence south 20 feet to the point of beginning for purpose of installing and maintaining utilities. Holy cow. I don't know what that means. That's where the surveyor comes in. The surveyor can draw that. But the, the level of exception and the level of easement and the complexity of those easement documents will help me dictate what level of survey I need. And we'll get into that in the next episode, but really there are I kind of consider three main levels of survey. There's the boundary survey, and then there's a base ALTA survey, and then there's an ALTA survey with a bunch of table A requirements. And the reading of these exception documents will help me determine which table A ALTA requirements I need. So today is kind of the precursor to that, to the next discussion. But ultimately, you need to figure out what exceptions there are, and then you need to, you need to uh, either solve them, get rid of them, object to them, or, or live with them. You know, so for example, if there's an ex- if there is a an existing lien on the property, you're going to want that to be taken care of at closing or prior to closing. If the taxes for the year are not paid, and taxes typically are paid one time or two times per year depending on the state, if you're closing on June 1st and taxes are not due till November 31st or to November 30th, well then you need to get prorations, which is typically on a per deem per day basis. You need to get prorated for the first six months of the year that the seller owned the property. So that when you have to pay the full bill, you've basically already been prepaid for the seller's half. So as you go through these exceptions, it's important just to look at each one of them. I'm not going to go through a bunch of them because they're pretty self-explanatory. It's just you got you to figure out what they mean. And it's generally, most of them are pretty much English. If you've got something complex, then talk to the surveyor or title attorney. And the title company will probably even help you with some of these for free. And then you can basically determine what quality of title you have and what problems you have with it. If you determine you have problems with the title, that's where your title objections come in. And title objections, this is basically where you have a right in your contract after receipt of title to object to certain things. I typically object to things like the time and date of the policy because if it's dated you know, today and I'm not going to close for 60 days, I want it to be updated and re-reviewed on the day of closing because otherwise anything that attaches the title between the date of search and the date of closing could potentially mess up my title. That's pretty standard. And then I also sometimes object to the total consideration of the purchase price, as I mentioned, because I, I'd i like to get the full consideration, which is impactful on my loan, to also be uh, insured. And I want to look at my loan policy. I talked briefly about owner's policy, which represents and, and defends the owner's quality of title. But if you have a lender involved, the lender is going to likely require you to have a loan policy. And if that's in 80% loan to value, then the loan policy is going to be 80% of the purchase price. And that is to the for the benefit of the lender. Now, typically, almost I've not, actually I've never seen anything but the borrower pays that. The lender makes you pay it. It's part of their it's part of their fees, and the seller doesn't pay it. It's just, it's, it really doesn't impact the seller. But you're going to be required to have that. So if you like did a refinance, for example, you may have a new lender. You'll have to have a new lender's policy, which may be at a different amount. 
but you may not need a new owner's policy because you already have one as owner representing you. Now, you may want to change the amount, but you have to pay premiums for all these policies, so you, it may not make sense to you to proceed. Um, another objection that I typically do, and I actually send a formal objection letter to the seller's attorney, the seller, the title company, but I'll, I'll object to the standard exceptions and i say these are anticipated to be satisfied at closing so like you know you know documents from the seller and a buyer provided like llc docs things like you know the payoff of certain mortgages you know all that the title i just basically tell the title company do not close and do not fund this deal and you know, i'm not going to buy this until you guarantee that these exceptions are taken care of and you can you can get something called a closing protection letter. You typically have to pay for this also, but it's pretty much standard. Is a closing protection letter that is is uh, you know a, a nice golden piece of paper you can rely upon. It's kind of like a like a life insurance policy. You've got here's what you've got. Here's what you're you know here's when you get paid. Here's when you're here's what you're covered, and it's a guarantee. Well, it's the sort, same sort of thing where the the title company will say, hey, look, here's your closing protection letter. You are now protected. Back to the objection letter, um, sometimes I have endorsements, which are typically not combative. It's just, hey, I want a survey endorsement. I want a zoning endorsement. Or you may get something called a comprehensive endorsement, which more of an institutional lender will acquire that. And it, it, it basically supplements the basic title policy. I'll sometimes mention on my assignment letter too, or excuse me, on my objection letter, I will mention things like the assignment and assumption of leases. So I will say... Buyer will require an assignment and an assumption of leases, and buyer's counsel has drafted said document for counsel, seller's counsel review, or buyer's counsel will draft it, or seller's counsel will. Who drafts that kind of stuff is negotiable. I typically like to draft them. I have more control over them. And the same thing for the bill of sale for personal property. As far as the warranty deed that will happen at closing, typically the seller drafts that and pays for that. And in some states, the seller is required. In some states, you even have to have a local state attorney sign off on it. So like that's been annoying for me a couple times where I'm not, I'm not licensed in every state, but I'll have, and I can do lots of other work in, the, in every state, but I can't write the dang warranty deed. And I got to hire somebody else to rubber stamp my document, um, which is pretty inexpensive, but it's just kind of a nuisance to find somebody, you know, hey, what's the cheapest fee you're going to charge me to, you know, sign off on a document that I drafted. But anyway, you can reference some of those things in your objection letter. And then... Sometimes you'll, this will be a chance if, if there's any other problems, like, you know, like in this example I'm looking at here, in response to exception number three, it's anticipated that closing will occur after the date when the second half of property taxes are due. So buyer, me, will require 2019 payable, 2020 taxes be paid prior to or at closing. And then I got another one here. In, in response to exceptions number 14 and number four, buyer requires that a satisfactory warranty deed and with the property free of any mortgages or deeds of trust be transferred to buyer at closing. So this deal... I don't remember this one, but it must have had it where there was some complexity with quit claim deeds and inter-party deeds and, and kind of, there, I think this one had some like seller financed family you know, promissory notes and, and um, deeds of trust and stuff floating around out there. So I was just like, I don't want to read all these and, and get in the middle of this family drama. I just want you guys to make it all go away at closing. And if you don't, I object. So some objections are for things that are actually flaws on title and typically the seller has a right to respond and either cure them or pay for them to go away or perhaps this is negotiable in your contract perhaps they get the right to just not cure them and then in which case the the buyer has the right to close anyway or bail um, oftentimes you'll have a, like a monetary limit like if anything can be satisfied by the seller by the payment of money of say less than ten thousand dollars then the seller just has to do it. They can't just say no. If it's a small amount of money, they may figure that, oh, the buyer will just eat it and close anyway. And that's not really fair to the buyer. 
So that's kind of the basics on the con- on the commitment, kind of the closing protection letter. We talked about the objection letter. Then you kind of get into the closing statement, and this is your last review. Typically, these are delivered, you know, two or three days before closing. You know, they're supposed to be basically, but sometimes it happens really late. But this will cover some of the same information, you know, name of the escrow officer, title company, address, legal description, borrower, seller, buyer, settlement date, disbursement date, all those things. But then basically it's a big math problem of, of seller debits and credits and borrower debits and credits. And, it's, and each half has to add up. That's how, you know, accounting works, right? But you'll have fees in there. You know, like this one I'm looking at, there was a, a 0.25% loan point, so a quarter point loan point that was to my lender. And then you'll have the proration of taxes, proration of rents. If there are security deposits, those transfer to the buyer. This one, there are some state tax fees. There's a search fee, which is to the title company. Search fees typically paid. This one was split, you know, 50-50 seller, buyer of 75 bucks a piece. There's a settlement fee. This is paid by the buyer. Closing protection letter to the seller. Uh, closing protection letter to the borrower, paid by me, the buyer. And then closing protection letter to the lender. Paid by the paid by me, the borrower, um, title lenders, title insurance paid by the borrower, a settlement fee that's typically paid by the seller, and then in this case, I had several Alta endorsements like access and entry, CCR, covenants, conditions, restrictions, uh, same as survey, zoning. So any of those any of those endorsements, those are typically paid by the buyer because they're the buyer's discretion, and then the owner's title policy. Uh, this one was was about $1,200, and this was on a, a relatively small deal. It was $520,000 purchase price. So the owner's policy, the premium amount of that is a function of the sales price, is a function of the insured amount, and the same for the lender's policy. This one, there was also um, the seller had some delinquent water bills with the city, so that was a lien on title. So we required at closing that that money, this is $19,000 of water, and we required that that money be tied up at closing so that the, the city could be paid so they didn't come after me. And sometimes the attorneys will be paid on the closing statement or any commissions. This one had a commission paid by the seller on the closing statement. Recording fees, those are typically for the loan or for the deed of trust. Those are typically paid by the buyer. There's transfer taxes or sometimes called sales taxes or transfer stamps. Those are negotiable but typically paid by the seller. And then in this case, the seller had an exchange, a 1031 exchange. So he had an exchange fee to his qualified intermediary. And then at the end, you know, in this case, the seller got money due to seller, and, which was a small number actually because he had a big 1031 exchange. And then due to seller borrower, well, this is money due uh, from me. You know, I had to bring my down payment. And if I didn't, if I didn't end my net with my closing cost and all the adjustments. So... Uh, that's just kind of the, the blocking and tackling, if you will, of title commitment, uh, title insurance, objection letters, closing statements. So this is part one of this this topic, and then the ancillary part two is coming up next, and that is going to be identifying, ordering, and, and reviewing a survey. So that's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review and subscribe today. Thank you for listening.
Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.